So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to our February 2019 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation and debate. My first guest is Dr. Joyce Lee, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the ILD program at the University of Colorado, Section of Pulmonary and Critical Care. And she's here to talk about her article, Point, Does Interstitial Pneumonia with Autoimmune Features Represent a Distinct Class of Patients with Idiopathic Interstitial Pneumonia? Yes. Joyce, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. To argue the opposite side, we've got Dr. Justin Oldham, Assistant Professor of Medicine from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care and Sleep Medicine and the Director of the ILD Program at the University of California at Davis in Sacramento, California. He's here to talk about his article, Counterpoint, Does Interstitial Pneumonia and Autoimmune Features Represent a Distinct Class of Patients with Idiopathic Interstitial Pneumonia? No. Justin, thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks for having me. So let, let's start just for, for, you know, before we launch into a debate, um, you know, whoever wants to grab this, just why are we even having this debate? You know, help uh, help set the framework for our listeners. Um, you know, what's going on, I guess, in, in, in ILD that there's a, a, another, you know, classification name out there, if you will, and why and what, what was trying to be accomplished, et cetera. Justin, you want me to go? You're an author, so uh, <laughs> you helped create IPAP, so I definitely defer to you on this one. All right, Joyce, well, I, take it away. <laughs> sure, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to start. So I think that, you know, of course, interstitial lung disease is a constantly evolving subject with lots of different names and classifications, and not to add to that ongoing list of acronyms and, and disease set classifications, but really to better understand these groups of conditions. I think many of us in the field recognize that there are some patients who have an autoimmune flavor to their lung disease. And so um, a group of people led by REA Fisher came together um, some years ago to try and come to a consensus that we're all talking about generally the same thing. Granted, it's probably not exactly the same in every person's mind, but generally the same concept of an autoimmune-driven interstitial lung process. And I think that's where it comes from. And, and clearly, this is a um, an area of active research and a hot-button topic because people disagree in terms of how to define these conditions, even what to name them, and how best to follow them moving forward. So I think it is an area that needs some further clarification. So, so the backstory then would be is that it, it, maybe some people would refer to this as an unclassified interstitial lung disease, or um, it was the I think you in the in the articles you use a case example of the the rheumatology evaluation. There's clearly not a connective tissue disorder that's been you know clinically assigned, but that there are serologic concerns for an autoimmune disease um, and an agreement that there's an interstitial lung disease. So rather than putting a patient into an unclassified bin, there's been an attempt to try to further classify. Is that the framework for this debate? That's exactly right. I mean, I think we're all very unsatisfied, both as patients and as care providers, to give a patient a diagnosis of an unclassifiable form of interstitial lung disease. And further refining that, we recognize that there are subphenotypes in unclassifiable ILD, and, and 
whether or not autoimmunity is driving that for a particular subset of patients, I think, is what this is driving at. And it's more than just serologic positivity, right? There are other features that support autoimmune phenotypes within this population, whether it's lymphoid aggregates by surgical lung biopsy or multi-compartment disease. There are definitely other clues besides just serologic positivity alone that really kind of emphasize this flavor of an autoimmune condition. And yeah, they go to the rheumatologist and they're like, well, you don't meet rheumatologic criteria for, you know, scleroderma or myositis or rheumatoid arthritis. And so it becomes very challenging and the patient doesn't have a a home essentially because they don't have a diagnosis. Justin, you want to add to that? And if nothing else, we can start the debate. (laughs) No, I think it was, what's worth noting is, you know, IPATH admirably, admirably um, added a, an additional diagnostic or, uh, or set of criteria that uh, was beyond what we were seeing with a few of the previous iterations, the, the UCTD, the, you know, the AIF, um, that allowed a person to meet criteria with having a clinical feature plus a positive serology or a positive serology and a morphologic feature that Joyce mentioned. Um, what was unique about IPATH relative to its predecessors was uh, a patient could meet IPATH criteria through a different, a couple different ways that wasn't possible before with the previous iterations. Okay, so then we agree that the, the, if, if nothing else, if the background is that an unclassified, you know. ILD is is something that you know we we all loathe and our we feel bad for our patients when we have to put them into that bin and and I think obviously as clinicians nobody's happy about it from a research perspective clearly nobody's happy about it because it would argue that it is sort of a you know the the dust bin and and it's hard to lump it all in together so this was an attempt to create a new classification um, can you talk about that process then I understand that we're having a debate about the schema but Joyce you were involved with it could you could you Talk to us about the process a little bit more. First of all, was rheumatology involved? Yes. So the lead on this um, class ETS ERS supported um, proposal was REA Fisher, who is a uh, bona fide rheumatologist. And um, you know, the I think the process in which this emerged was lots of people were writing about this group of patients. So undifferentiated connective tissue disease or UCTD, autoimmune featured or AIF, and and all of these or lung dominant was another um, term that was coined in the years preceding this um, ATS ERS statement. And and people realized that there was just a lot of um, uh, heterogeneity in which people were defining these conditions, um, but ultimately recognizing that there is something there. And let's come together as a group of uh, pulmonologists, rheumatologists, there were radiologists and pathologists, and come together and at least um, agree that there is this group of patients that have autoimmune-featured interstitial pneumonia and um, and come up with a single name that we're all going to use for from a research construct um, level. And then what are the things that make us as clinicians or radiologists or pathologists really think about autoimmunity um, in as playing a large role in the disease process? And so we set up some arbitrary... Um, evid- you know, it, not evidence-based, but really um, experience-based um, uh, domains in which to potentially unify people around some working 
uh, classification system. And we recognized from the very beginning that this was not going to be the end-all, be-all of, of the criteria, but at least a starting platform for which people can study and start talking about the same thing. And that's where the, the domains came in, so the clinical domain, the serologic domain, and then the morphologic domain as contributors to um, suspecting autoimmunity in, in the lung disease process. Okay, so with that backdrop, then I mean the, the, this whole idea of the point counterpoint. Um, obviously, as 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 a one of the authors and and on that committee, uh, and and arguing the pro side, um, you know there is an argument from your perspective, obviously, that IPAF is a distinct entity. Um, Justin, what I mean, why not give us the give us the argument against um, uh, if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly or if, as having read your arguments that that. Your argument is is that you've just renamed an unclassified uh, grouping because it's so broad that you feel like it hasn't really created a distinct entity. Is that am I putting words in your mouth, or uh, you know, no, do you I want to clarify? Yeah, I think that's correct. Um, you know, I, Joyce had a great point in her uh, rebuttal, which was, you know, are we talking about the idea of IPAF or, or IPAF, you know, in reality? And you know, I actually share her and Arie's, uh, uh opinion that it is a uniform diagnosis or uniform group of people in, in the concept of it, and I hope it gets to that point. Um, but as someone who's had to assemble an IPAF criteria, we published one of the first IPAF papers after the criteria were released, um, I found that I struggled with having to assign some of these features and determine them, uh, you know, with my co-authors, whether they were positive or not, and, you know, it had implications for how the cohort was designed. And I took some solace in the fact that every paper that came after seemed to have some of the same same problems that I did. And now that we have six, seven, eight of these papers out there, uh, it's just striking how different the cohorts are that have been assembled. And so, you know, one of the main points we made, uh, myself and, and Dr. Sonia Danoff from Johns Hopkins, was that while we, you know, support the authors, we support this concept, uh, you know, in reality, the, the criteria just not allowing for a uniform cohort to be generated. And so what we sought to do in our opinion piece was identify a few areas that can be improved upon to, to hopefully make that come to fruition. And totally agree with all the really great um, suggestions because I think this is exactly what the purpose of that you know, workshop or ATS ERS statement was to do is to really, you know, here is something to start with. Here's the straw man, and let's figure out where the weaknesses are. And I think um, part of what we, you know, we tried to do this retrospectively in all of our databases and, you know, looking back, did we ask about, you know, um, Raynaud's in the way that we should have asked about Raynaud's? Did we ask about, you know, all of the symptom-based questions in a, a yes-no format that easily falls into the criteria? How do we define, you know, out-of-proportion um, vascular disease? And these are not things that were um, specified by the criteria, right, because we didn't actually know. Um, and and looking back retrospectively, I think that is the, one of the major limitations. Prospectively, I think it would be wonderful for people to come together now that these are out there to come up with some standard ways of assessing these symptoms, standard serologic testing, how are we going to define, 
you know, airways disease, how are we going to define out-of-proportion vascular disease, and then test it, right? But um, when the criteria came out, it was really largely, you know, what do we think might be important, and then let's, let's figure out where they fall short and how to improve it moving forward, which is exactly what you guys are pointing out in your, um, in your counterpoint. A lot of the uh, discussion between both the point and counterpoint was focusing on the Denver and Chicago IPATH cohorts that were assembled. Um, you know, these couldn't be two more different cohorts. And when I first started out uh, with, with Chicago cohort when I was still at the University of Chicago, I was hoping that I was going to see what you guys ultimately um, characterized, which was, you know, this per- fairly strong autoimmune flare or autoimmune themed uh, type patient who it was a no-brainer to give immunosuppression to. And, you know, they had stable lung function over time and mortality was low. You know, that, that's the group that I was hoping to see. But when we applied it to patients with IIP, all comers, uh, with real, without really any regard to pretest probability of, of having autoimmune disease, we just saw so many patients with IPF who sort of snuck in because they had a positive ANA and, you know, something that we thought maybe might, was out of proportion or, you know, unexplained pulmonary sure. vasculopathy or, or airways disease. So what do you think um, drove that difference? Because that's always been so curious, you know, comparing Chicago and Denver. And, you know, I've thought about a lot of different things, but curious to see what you think might be contributing to that. Yeah, so I think for for... One thing, we just have such a high prevalence of um, positive serologies, ANA specifically, in Chicago. I don't know if this is true of other places in the Midwest, but, you know, you came from UCSF and published a paper on serologies in patients with IPF, and, and the, the prevalence was actually quite low, yeah, relative to what we were seeing in Chicago. Now that I'm out in California, um, I've noticed the exact same thing you did when you were in San Francisco. So I think there's something to... Uh, geographic heterogeneity in, in, in antibodies, and, and I don't know yeah. what that is, you know. Uh, is it ethnicity, or too? What? I mean, I don't know if that's a different population as well. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, a lot of our IPATH population, you know, by a quarter of it or so was coming from our IPF population, so that probably, you know, made the population a little bit whiter than uh, would have otherwise been. But I don't think the the demographic breakdown is really all that different with regard to yeah. race. Um, so, I, you know, to me, it seems more environmental. But I have no way of. I was wondering for for the you know for our listeners if if both of you could just give a, a brief summary of you know as you're talking about the data from the you know the Colorado cohort versus the Chicago cohort. I, I was struck by and maybe I heard this wrong, Justin. You said that basically um, the you took the IPATH criteria and applied it to a large cohort of interstitial lung diseases, including some people who uh, ultimately were diagnosed with IPF. But your point was that IPATH uh, sort of had enough crossover that you know someone could mistakenly be called IPATH, but they actually had IPF. Is that what I heard, or is it that you all both took this sort of unclassified group, if you will, where you know they clearly weren't a connective tissue ILD, they clearly were not IPF, and it was, well, wow, how do I lump these people somewhere? And then, then you all applied IPATH criteria. So, because I think where one starts to apply the criteria potentially matters here. 
Yeah, and that's a point that we're making is, um, you know, we, we applied it very agnostically to a group of patients with IIP, idiopathic interstitial pneumonia, uh, right. IPF being the most common under that umbrella. Um, so, you know, we didn't differentiate whether they had idiopathic NSIP, IPF, that sort of thing. We just said, if you have an IIP, we're applying these criteria to you. And that's, that's part of the reason we got the cohort we did. Um, I'm actually interested in, Joyce, in how you guys put your cohort together, because all I had to go on from the methods of your paper was that these patients were seen through a rheumatology clinic. So I assumed they had a bit more autoimmune features than, than you know, your typical IIP patient might otherwise. Yeah, so that actually REA spearheaded the Denver cohort. I was thinking back to our UCSF paper in which we applied the different um, criteria, the UCTD, lung dominant, and autoimmune featured. I mean, that was in UCSF, and we took all comers with IIP and applied that. But as you noted, our prevalence of serologic positivity was markedly lower than, than the Chicago cohort at UCSF. So, so the UCSF data would have been similar, at least in approach, to the University of Chicago data from the perspective of just agnostically applying it. But there's, there's, as you both pointed out already, there seems to be a large difference in the prevalence of a serologic abnormality in these two cohorts. Yeah, and I don't know what you see, Justin, in Chicago or saw in Chicago, but at UCSF we were very much a tertiary, almost quaternary referral center for many patients, and so um, you know we didn't see the we didn't see them right away either. Right. No, we had a very similar uh, referral pattern in Chicago as you guys did there. So, I mean, in, at its core then, I mean, if you, are we arguing, I mean, about a disorder, you know, that fine, maybe the criteria do not work well at, at all comers, but correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't the purpose of the original formation of this task force to try to classify a group that wasn't fitting into a bin of already being called IPF, already being called CTILD, um, you know, the sort of, we all agreed on what the obvious ones were, and then this was the, the pot that was left over, and you were trying to further discriminate amongst that pot. Um, yeah. Is that, is, so is, is the debate then about, you know, how well this thing discriminates amongst that pot, <laughs> for, if you will? We actually, <laughs> we took it on as, like, does this pot actually exist, right? Like, that right. was our... Um, that was our podium, and that's what we, you know, were trying to... And I don't think that's actually an argument, and Justin, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we all agree that there are these populations of patients that exist. And I think what we need to work on is actually the criteria and how better to define the people that should fall into this pot. But I think that um, we took this, you know, point-counterpoint as, does the pot actually exist and does it have a place in this, you know, classification system? And I think we, you know, we personally feel that it does. Um, do we have the right diagnostic criteria? Absolutely not, and it definitely needs work. And that's where I think that um, discussions like this are actually very helpful in figuring out where where the problems are and how can we reduce misclassification of this this group of patients that we're trying to define. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I wonder out loud, uh, and maybe you guys can. Oh no, go ahead, Justin, please. No, no, I'm I'm probably just going to reiterate what Joyce said, so you go ahead. <laughs> well, I wonder if, if, if you guys could, uh, for, our, for our audience, opine on this then. Um, you know, there's always been this thought that 
fine, you saw a patient, and you know, again, I'll go back to the the case example that was in the the point that uh, Joyce makes in the article. But that if okay, if I could flash forward two years from now or whatever, this patient will very obviously clinically meet the criteria for you know, rheumatoid arthritis or or whatever, and that basically we're catching them on the early stage of a slope of uh, what's going to ultimately become an obvious rheumatologic disorder. And that maybe the one barrier we're all up against is how the rheumatologic uh, definitions uh, for you know most of their disorders don't include interstitial lung diseases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a point that uh, I think Dr. Danoff makes regularly, uh, and I think Joyce and I alluded to it in their... Um, rebuttal, which was, you know, the, the lung is not necessarily appreciated as a, a target organ in autoimmune disease. And if we come to a consensus ultimately with our rheumatology colleagues that the lung is indeed a target organ in autoimmune disease, you know, IPAF might not be necessary because, you know, they, they would be more likely to meet, you know, established criteria for a CTD. Do you agree, Joyce? Yeah, yeah completely. And I think that, you know, this is where we... Um, have difficulty, right? Because when patients come to see us, they want the diagnosis at the time of the initial visit. And unlike, you know, lung cancer or other things that don't have this, um, you know, a period of time in which things can evolve, um, I think it becomes very difficult. And having criteria that are applied at time zero versus maybe they need to be applied at T6, 12, or, you know, how are we measuring this over time? And, and I, unfortunately, we need to use time as a diagnostic tool in many of our, our conditions, and that's, that can be very challenging, obviously, for the patient. What's been striking to me is, uh, you know, there aren't many studies out there, but just the pretty low prevalence of people progressing from, you know, IPATH or, or its uh, equivalent to overt CTD. I've, I've heard 10, 20% quoted, um, which seems low. You know, if we, if we think these patients have a cult CTD, you would expect more to progress. Maybe we just don't have enough lead time yet. But I've always been struck at just how low a prevalence it seems that people are yeah. progressing. Agree, and I, I wonder if that's um, if it's a, a time issue, or if it's because we identify this and we immunosuppress them, and we prevent them from developing, you know, full-on RA or you know something. Maybe it's imp- our treatment of their what we believe to be an autoimmune lung process is impacting their the natural evolution of their an un, you know early connective tissue disease. Well. That's the other question I have. From a clinical perspective, if I'm a if I'm in practice and tomorrow I see a patient who clearly does not have a you know IPF by current criteria and doesn't meet you know they just saw the rheumatologist and, and they say no there's there's nothing rheumatologic here but they you know they meet the criteria for IPATH. Um, and the patient says, well, what's wrong with me? What do I have? And what drugs are you going to give me? Can I get any drugs? And, you know, I mean, well, how am I, because I can't breathe. That's why I came to see you, right? So how, what does this diagnosis do for me as a clinician to try to help my patients besides just muddy the waters with another acronym? I can, I can tell you what we're doing here is I tell the Please. patient that, um, <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, obviously, you can enroll them in a study if you can. I mean, obviously, right? I mean, yeah, right. But, you know, I don't have I don't have a study available to put my patient in, and yeah. you know, they're not going to travel, and you know, yada yada yada. Yeah. So if there was a patient who came in that um, didn't have IPF or connective tissue disease ILD, but for you know serologic or other reasons, I suspected autoimmunity as a component. I would tell the patient that they have um, an autoimmune-related interstitial lung disease, and that we would treat that with immune suppression. And, um, you know, if they were having symptoms or physiologic decline and things like that. So that's um, how we or I approach it here. Justin, yeah, are you similar? I, yeah, we're pretty similar. I mean, the, the branch point for me a lot of times is whether the patient has UIP um, uh, on biopsy or, uh, or even radiographically. Um, I've had a fair number of cases come in who have UIP. I, I call them IPF. But then they endorse some Raynauds, and they have a you know, positive antibody, but otherwise no other features of, of ILD or of uh, CTD rather. You know, they meet IPATH criteria. Does that mean I tell them they have an autoimmune lung disease? No, not necessarily. Um, in the paper we published with the Chicago data showed that uh, the morphologic features were more important than anything else, uh, such that if you had UIP, your survival wasn't going to be a whole lot different than IPF. Um, but if you had NSIP organizing pneumonia, you were going to have a pretty good outcome. And so I, I follow that. Um, and I, you know, another point that Sonia and I made was that it might be that not all serologies are created equal. Um, if a patient comes in with a positive JO1 or a, another myositis-specific antibody, I'm much more likely to treat them with immunosuppression, um, irrespective of whether they have UIP or not. You know, I have a couple young females with UIP, but JO1 positives that don't meet dermatomyositis criteria, but am I going to withhold treatment from them? No, obviously not. Now, an 80-year-old with an ANA who says he might have had some finger swelling, a whole different story. You know, if there's UIP, I'm, I'm still probably calling that patient IPF. Yeah, and I think one of the unfortunate uh, byproducts of this criteria is people who actually had IPF are now being considered autoimmune because of these criteria, and I think that is not uh, that is one of the things that we need to reconsider um, when these criteria are reevaluated is the misclassification of patients who actually have IPF. And, um, and you know, I think the, the more interesting, one of the more interesting things from what you mentioned, Justin, is the role of UIP in connective tissue disease, ILD, or IPAF, um, because we're not, you know, it's not in the treatment or diagnostic paradigm to look for UIP um, like we do for IPF. That's right. I mean, Justin, you're hinting Actually, that, that, that you're you're hinting that you're seeing a distinct kind of almost. If you take IPAF, you're already kind of seeing two distinct flavors of it, if you will. One that's a UIP pattern versus an NSIP pattern, and you know that which I think you both agree that can happen. But but you're seeing a clinical difference in outcomes, and that would potentially argue that we're going to start to bias our treatments. If any. Yeah, I, you know, I, I gave a talk at Chest on the treatment of, of IPAF, which is a hilarious topic because I had no data to guide my talk that I gave. Um, but that was sort of the, uh, the stratification point that I used, which was, you know, if they have something that looks like an inflammatory ILD, uh, i.e. NSIP organizing pneumonia, you know, treat it as though you would a CTD. If it's UIP, unless you have a compelling reason, um, you know, such a such that they have a positive myositis-specific antibody, a young female-type situation, you know, otherwise consider it as IPF. And I'm sure there will be some that disagree with that, but 
we don't really have data to guide how we're supposed to be treating these patients yet. Hopefully that will change moving forward when we get some more data. But, yeah, this UIP phenomenon and these connective tissue disease ILDs or autoimmune ILDs is, is a true challenge. Well, Joyce, you brought up something, and let me ask you guys if uh, the two of you obviously are deeply involved in the field and the care of these patients. So somebody has potentially been labeled uh, IPF, but then... You know, you, you meet with them and you discuss things and, and, and you change it to IPATH, um, but, um, you know, but they have a UIP pattern, um, but you're no longer calling them IPF. Does that mean then the two drugs that are approved for IPF, you've, that we can, I'm not here to debate whether they, how well they work, et cetera. But, you know, the patient says, I, I want to go on these medications. I read about them. They're online, blah, blah, blah. Now you have them in a diagnosis that says we can't use those drugs. Yeah, I think you need to um, be very careful about um, how you diagnose patients and how you label them because it does impact their ability to, to receive um, therapy. That's not that's true, not just of IPAF. Um, you know, of course, Joyce published Joyce published a fantastic paper in New England recently that showed that you know genetically RAUIP may be different than RA non-UIP, and so that extends to a lot of the CTD world, uh, which is, you know, if we're seeing UIP in these patients, should maybe they be getting, you know, an antifibrotic, and that's a question that I think is a lot of, on a lot of people's minds after that paper that you got published. Yeah, for sure, and I think that, you know, immune suppression in RAILD or any, well, in RAILD is, is not proven therapy. It's what we do, um, but we worry because of that underlying UIP phenotype in those patients and, and how similar are they to IPF. And it's a, um, a whole can of worms that we don't quite understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was, I mean, obviously, I, I knew there wouldn't be an answer per se, uh, but I wanted to have you guys talk more about it just from a, a big picture perspective. Yeah. Um, so we've been obviously talking for a while. Um, I want to be respectful of everybody's time. What haven't we talk, touched on or when, when you all mentally agreed to do this, what did you say, oh, I'm, he's going to ask me about this, and then, of course, I failed to do so. So what, what other things did you all want to bring up or kind of what final thoughts do you all have? Gosh, I think Sorry, that, um, yeah, we've covered um, – I think we've covered the importance of, you know, this group of conditions, and I think we've highlighted the limitations of the current criteria, and I think um, the I think what's important is moving forward from these um, set of criteria and really figuring out how better to refine them and how to reduce misclassification and really how to operationalize these research criteria into clinically meaningful clinical criteria, and that will come with, you know, another... Um, you know, review of the, the data and, um, you know, probably another testing of the guidelines. And, you know, much like it is with our other ILDs, I'm sure it'll be, you know, a, a thing that evolves over time, unfortunately, just because of our, our limited understanding at this point of this group of conditions. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think from my standpoint and what Sonia Danoff and I argued, um, you know, we need to you know, from my perspective of someone who's in the trenches applying these criteria, or at least I was at one point, um, just having a better guidance on, you know, what is a unexplained feature in the multi 
compartment uh, subdomain. And even more important than that is is agreeing as a community which patients uh, in which patients we apply these criteria so that we are sort of all at the start same starting point and then maybe we might see these cohorts become a little bit more uh, homogeneous right and I'm, I'm struck that this is necessary from the perspective of then being able to design obviously therapeutic interventions that you know if they're either going to work or don't work but we got to at least make sure we're talking about the same disorder before we apply them correct so that's right well, as expected, this was a great discussion, and for our, for our listeners, um, if you've not obviously read the articles yet, please do. Um, they obviously expand on everything that you just heard today, and are, and are, it's a, it's very well written. It's a, I think, it uh, complements the two of you on a on a nice summary of, you know, those current challenges, what was trying to be accomplished here, and I think it really does uh, outline for everybody, you know, this 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 evolving area of of interstitial pneumonias and and I think um you know is is it, it's a great read and and obviously then we'll, is then highlighted by this conversation so uh, thank you very much to the two of you uh for your time and and for the articles thank you for thank having you. us